You are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. A reading from 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 2 3. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Megan, thank you so much for reading scripture for us this morning. You might be able to relate to this story. I don't know if you have independent children, but the Percy household growing up when I was little was full of three of them. And there was a saying around our house that went like this, I do it. And Megan, maybe you've heard this from one of your little boys before, but we like to do things ourselves. We like to be independent. And I imagine that my parents had to deal with a lot of extra messes because of it. Spilt milk, broken glasses, you know, that kind of thing. We were very independent and I still like to accomplish things on my own. I like to figure things out, see if I can do it, see if I can figure out how. And this has translated recently into home improvement projects. And maybe some of you can relate to that, where you have thought, what, I I can do this, I can figure it out. When I moved in with Jeff after we got married, there was this lovely but very intrusive antler chandelier in our dining room. And it was kind of like one of those, like someone took antlers and hot glued them to the chandelier kind of thing. And I ordered this really cute new chandelier and thought one day while Jeff was out of the house, I am going to be helpful and I'm going to hang this new chandelier. We should also know that my home improvement projects never come without at least one phone call to a grandpa. So in the middle of hanging the chandelier, I realized that there's like these electrical components involved and I'm going to have to hook up some wires. And it was very basic. And so I still was fully confident that I could handle this myself. So I call my grandpa, talk through it. So I get all the way to the part where you are on the dining room table holding the chandelier. The electrical components have been connected, but 
it is not a one-person job. I cannot hold the chandelier and attach the things that I need to attach. And so when Jeff walks in the door, you can imagine the scene. Here I am standing on top of our dining room table, holding the chandelier. My arms were getting so tired. I was hoping you would be home soon. And he walks in the door after a long day and climbs on the table and is so gracious with me. And he helps me fix the chandelier. I just wanted so badly to accomplish it on my own. When was the last time that you tried to do something on your own and you realized that you were in over your head? Haven't we all tried to do something on our own and realized this is not gonna work? We value this I do it mentality in our culture. We applaud when someone accomplishes something out of their own strength or their sheer willpower. And we really do want our kids to grow up being independent people who are capable of pouring their own glass of milk and doing their own laundry. But then we take this same I do it mentality and we apply it to faith. We apply it to our walk with God. We think like that Nike slogan, just do it. We think that we can just do it. We think we can make it on our own if we just try harder, that things will be better if we just believe more, trust more, hope more. There's a story of a young guy who gets a call at work one day and he's asked to join in a new kind of business. He and his brother dropped everything that they were doing and left the family business to join this new venture. They didn't know where they were going or what would happen, but here was a chance to be an apprentice, to learn from someone after this person had likely been dismissed from school a few years earlier. This man's name was Peter and his brother was Andrew and they left fishing to follow Jesus and fish for people instead, not really having any idea what that meant. Over the next three years, Peter would learn from and follow Jesus all over the place, experiencing what it meant to live for and to live like Jesus. Peter was a take the bull by the horns, I do it kind of guy. He was an ambitious leader, sometimes impulsive, and would often barge into situations with this attitude of independence and confidence. One day, after Jesus had been teaching crowds of people, he needed some time alone with God. And so he sent Peter and the other disciples to the other side of the lake while he went up on the mountainside to pray. And the wind was pretty fierce that day and the lake was choppy. And shortly before dawn, Jesus finishes praying and he goes up to meet with them. But it's Jesus, so he doesn't take a boat. Instead, he just starts walking across the lake. Peter looks up and sees him and he says, Lord, if that's you, tell me and I'll come to you. And Jesus says, come. Peter started walking on water, but he starts looking around and he sees that the wind is so fierce and the waves are getting bigger and he becomes overwhelmed by his surroundings and he is overcome with fear and he says, I can't do it. Lord, save me. I'm in over my head, literally. Now, did Jesus look at Peter and shake his head and say, what were you thinking? You can't walk on water. No. Immediately, Jesus reaches out and catches Peter. And he simply looks at him and says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you try to do it on your own, Peter? Why didn't you keep your eyes fixed on me? 
This is both the challenge and the life-saving kind of grace that Jesus offers us today. About 30 years later or so, Peter would write a letter to a group of churches. For 30 years, he had lived for Jesus and had recognized Jesus' saving grace not only on the water that day, but as a promise for life both now and forever. Day by day, Peter had grown from the little faith he had that day on the water to have a faith on which God would build his church. Now these many years later, towards the end of Peter's life, we get to learn from both his wisdom and his experience of a personal encounter with Jesus. Our reading today starts in 1 Peter 1.13. Bjorn started us in our new series, Hope Rising, last week. And if you're just jumping in with us today, I encourage you to spend some time later in these first 12 verses of 1 Peter. There's so much there to learn from. Now imagine if you get a long text or email from someone and you just start reading in the middle. It can be confusing to figure out context, figure out what's going on. Now we've broken up the letter for our series, of course, because there's so much to learn from it. But as we're going through, don't forget that it is written as one cohesive letter. We have to look back at this first section because we're jumping into chapter 1, verse 13. And it starts with the word, therefore. And every time you see this, you have to ask the ever so cheesy but pertinent question, what is the therefore, therefore? Peter has just described this incredible new life we have when we put our hope and our trust in Jesus. The message version says it like this, what a God we have and how fortunate we are to have him, the father of our master Jesus, because Jesus was raised from the dead. We've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future in heaven. And the future starts now. God is keeping careful watch over us and the future. The day is coming when you'll have it all, life healed and whole. Peter will constantly remind us through this letter that God's grace, what God has done for us on the cross, comes first. And he'll go back and forth between this is how Jesus lived and this is how we are to live in response. We hear this word grace, and what does that mean anyway? I think such a picture of God's grace is that day when Jesus extended his hand and caught Peter and literally saved his life when he was drowning in the waves. Author Dallas Willard describes it like this, grace is God acting in our lives to accomplish what we couldn't do on our own. Grace is God acting in our lives to accomplish what we couldn't do on our own. It's what God did for us on the cross to forgive our sins and give us new life, exactly what Peter described for us in these first few verses of the letter. Verse, 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Set your hope fully on grace. This is the foundation, and it's always in this order. Grace is first, and how we are to live is second. So having described grace and challenging his readers to set their hope fully on the grace given to them through Jesus, Peter describes how we are to live. And he begins with God's instructions to be holy as I am holy. 
I don't know about you, but I hear the word holy and I get a little bit weirded out. And we might think of popes or nuns or holy places like cathedrals or temples. Maybe you feel like I do sometimes, like, Jesus, if my head wasn't attached to my body, I might lose it. How am I supposed to be holy? I feel so far from holy. We have to adjust what we hear when we hear this word. We have to repair our minds to think differently. Peter's saying, prepare your minds for action. On our own, we think more right behavior plus less wrong behavior equals holiness. That's not God's reality. And that is not what Peter has learned about holiness from spending time with Jesus. He's really saying, when he's saying, be holy like I am holy, saying, be like Jesus, live like him. God thinks being in relationship with God is holiness. God has made us holy by his grace. It is part of our new identity. If you bring a caterpillar to a scientist and you ask them if they will test the DNA of that caterpillar, the scientist will tell you it's a butterfly. Now, you know that one day it will display the behavior and the attitudes of a butterfly, but really it's maturing into what is already true about it. God gave us the DNA of holiness. Nothing will make us more holy than we already are. He is asking us to join him in what already is. Peter understands that he is loved by God, not because of anything that he has done, but because of what Christ has done for him. He can write the words, be holy because I am holy, because Peter understands what it is to live in grace. When we hear it, it's so easy to think right behavior instead of relationship. If you're seeking Jesus, you will always live in this tension that Smothers describe in the book, The Kingdom Life. They say, on one line, you are working on my sin issues. You're working on your own sin issues. It's a self-effort. It's law-driven. On the second line, it says you're trusting who God says I am. It's God's effort. It's our new identity. And rather than being law-driven, it is grace-driven. Do you catch the difference? So we have this tension that we're always living in. And when we hear, be holy because I am holy, we too often will start with the top line. But we have it backwards. We can only be holy because God has made us holy. It is our identity in him that matters. So how do we live holy lives based on relationship instead of focusing on our behavior? Well, Peter will spend the rest of this section fleshing out what it means to live like Jesus. And they will likely sound rather simple when we boil it down. And it may sound familiar to you. Love God and love others. He says we are to love God by living in fear of the Lord because of the blood shed for us on the cross. If you look at 1 Peter 1, 17 here, it says, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners in reverent fear. We are to live in fear of God? What? 
I don't get it. Megan, you've been talking about this loving God, full of grace, saving Peter from the waves. What do you mean, fear God? Have you ever stood next to the ocean or another large body of water near like Lake Superior and you just simply soaked in the beauty of it? It's so majestic and beautiful and so powerful that you have to respect the water. Ocean riptides and waves, the lake, rip currents, they can be life-threatening. Practically, this means that we live in such a way that respects the boundaries that God has laid out for us in Scripture because we understand the consequences that could be in play if we choose to live outside the lines. Now, for some of us, we are more wired to live inside of the lines and we feel more comfortable there. But for others, we want to push the boundaries and see how far we can go before the consequences really affect us. One afternoon, I was in Duluth on a mission trip with a group of students and we were hanging out by Lake Superior at the end of our workday. We're sitting on the rocks on the beach and the red flags were up for swimming, which means that the conditions were dangerous because of high winds and the possibility of rip currents. And I kept the students that I was in charge of, I kept them on shore because I was living in fear, right? In the sense that I was respecting the power of the water. I was also making a decision to follow the boundaries out of love for the kids that were in my care. We choose to follow and to live within God's boundaries in fear of him. It's a response of love, right? To live in reverent fear of the Lord is not to be afraid to have respect and awe and to appreciate both the beauty of God and the power of God. But God in his goodness, he knew that we couldn't stay within the boundaries on our own. The Israelites tried. They had the law and time and time again, they strayed away from it. And so God sent his son Jesus, who, as Peter writes, was chosen before the creation of the world. This was not plan B. This was plan A. To be a perfect sacrifice for our sins, his blood covering all of our mistakes, our insufficiencies, our sin. He died and rose again so that we could have new life with God. And when we fail to imitate Jesus, to be like him, when we step outside the boundaries and we think that we are God instead of fearing God, God's grace covers us. Receiving this grace and this unconditional love gives us the capacity to love others. This is The next part that Peter writes is just being so true. We are to love others sincerely from the heart because Christ loved us first. You look at 1 Peter 1.22. He writes, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for one another, love each other deeply from the heart. This word sincere It's also translated genuine, earnest, honest, true love. The literal meaning of the word is without hypocrisy. Greek play actors used to use masks so that they could play several different roles in one show. So these masks on sticks that they would just trade out as they played different roles. And that's where the word hypocrisy comes from. They were literally hypocrites, mask wearers. Doing one thing and saying another, right, is this idea of hypocrisy. Beliefs that don't match behavior. 
On Saturday, masks became mandatory in public places, and I have never thought more about masks than I have these last few months. And regardless of what you think about the place of masks in our world right now, isn't it easier to be hypocritical in our love for others rather than sincere, even when you think about that one issue that we're facing? Maybe you've heard the term cancel culture. We talked quite a bit about it at our high school group at the Tiki Bonfire this past Wednesday. And cancel culture seems to be this antithesis of sincere love. If you're not familiar with it, one CNN article described it this way. When people say they are canceling a famous person, that's essentially what they're trying to do. They wanna take away their power or their cultural capital. They wanna diminish their significance, whether it's boycotting or public shaming. So when you cancel someone, you are trying to diminish someone's significance because of one thing that they've said or done, and you essentially are trying to cancel them. Isn't this exactly the opposite of sincere love of what we see Jesus do? The phrase cancel culture is new, but the concept is not. Remember the woman caught in adultery and the religious leaders tried to cancel her? And Jesus says, no, I love her. Remember the little kids that come to Jesus and the disciples try to cancel them? They try to send them away, diminish their significance. And Jesus knelt down and said, let the little children come to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Jesus showed us what it meant to live a life of love, sincere, deep, genuine love. This is what it is to be like Jesus, to be holy as he is holy. Every time we love people like Jesus did, we reflect God's goodness to a broken world. In the last two weeks, I have heard countless stories of people right here in our community doing extraordinary but seemingly ordinary things to show sincere love in the name of Jesus. One woman took the produce from her garden and put it out on a table in her neighborhood so her neighbors could come and take what they needed. Many people have helped with meal distribution at the Y. Someone else put together furniture for a single parent. Others of you have shown up for your coworkers and simply asked them the genuine question, how are you doing? You've been God's goodness through your genuine, true, honest love for one another. I know that on my own, my love for others can be hypocritical and it can be insincere. But thank God that we can live under God's grace, enabled by the Holy Spirit to love one another. But this isn't just like an automatic switch that when we start following Jesus, we become these sincere, loving people. There is effort involved on our part. This is where we come back to the top line. Work on my sin issues. 1 Peter 2, 1 says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, there's that word again, envy and slander of every kind. Having spent an inordinate amount of time these last several months, it is amazing to me that being home all the time still means that my house is messy. I drive by Goodwill sometimes and I see a huge line in the donation drop-off and I just think, I should probably be in that line. 
But the reality is that I have spent a lot more time looking at the mess than I've actually tried to do anything about it. It's like I just keep thinking that one day I'm going to walk in and suddenly the laundry will be put away and the kitchen floor will be mopped and all these things will be done. Does anyone else procrastinate cleaning in hopes of maybe just like a cleaning fairy showing up? In the message version of First Peter, it says, Clean house. Make a clean sweep of malice and pretense, envy and hurtful talk. This verse just hits me square in the chest because I can think of more than a few hurtful words that I've said in this last week. The top line does matter if we want to become like Jesus. It takes some effort on our part. Dallas Willard writes, God's grace will accompany us every step of the way, but it will never permit us to be merely passive in our spiritual formation in Christ. God's grace isn't going anywhere. But that doesn't mean we can just be passive in our walk with Jesus. Peter's reminding the people in the churches that they need to work on their sin issues because there are things that are damaging relationships. Maybe you've had something hurtful that was said to you, maybe even this weekend, and you felt the sting of what it does to your relationship with that person. Maybe it's something you said, and God is prompting you to go to that person and to ask for forgiveness to clean house. Peter goes on and he says this powerful phrase. He says, like newborn babies crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. We're going to come back to that middle section, but I'm wondering today if you have tasted that the Lord is good. If summer were normal, the conversation right now would probably be about what your favorite state fair food is. You may have seen though, this past week, they did announce that there is going to be a drive-through state fair experience where they're gonna have 16 fair food vendors, including Sweet Martha's Cookies, Dairy Goodness Malts, Pronto Pups, Mini Donuts, and Cheese Curds. My mouth was watering as I read that list. You should know, though, there is a six-pail limit per car on Sweet Martha's cookies. That is a ton of cookies! Over the first five or six years that I lived in Minnesota, people would start talking every July about all these fair foods that they loved, about things like Pronto Pups. I'm like, is that even edible? What are you talking about? They talk about riding the giant slide or seeing these butter heads. And I just think, people pay for that? Now, I thought it was kind of fun to hear people talk about it because they talked about it with so much passion and conviction. And they all had their own concept of like what the best way to go to the fair was. Now, I realize that maybe you're a fair person and maybe you're not. But if you have lived in Minnesota, you definitely know what I'm talking about. I had never experienced any state fair until two years ago when Jeff and I spent an evening walking around. And yes, I got my first taste of the Minnesota State Fair. And I will say, it did not disappoint. We made sure to hit the high points, Pronto Pups, Mini Donuts, and yes, some Sweet Marthas. We walked around the animal barns, we saw the famous butter sculptures, and yet I know we missed a lot because we just spent a couple of hours there. I had heard that the fair was a place with fun experiences and delicious food, but I hadn't experienced it for myself. 
Today, I'm wondering if you have experienced the goodness of God or have you just heard about it? Maybe you have in the past. Maybe today you're doubting it. You're looking around at the wind and the waves and you feel like you are in over your head and you have lost sight of the goodness of Jesus. So what do we do in those moments? We turn to God's word. When Peter wrote, Like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Crave the word. Some of you know that we are having a baby in December, and let me tell you that I understand a whole lot more about cravings. I have eaten more watermelon and salt and vinegar chips this summer than I probably have in my entire life. Do you crave time? with Jesus? Do you crave time in his word? Do you need it like a newborn baby needs milk? On Friday afternoon, we celebrate and remember the life of Nikki Holmes, a young mom who experienced the brokenness and pain of this world as she battled cancer, who is now at home with the Lord. She has received the fullness of grace that was promised and is living life whole and healed. Bjorn shared in his message on Friday from Nikki's prayer journal. She wrote often of the power of scripture, and in one entry she wrote that the word of God nourishes her soul. Nikki understood what it was to crave the word of God, to need it like a newborn baby needs milk. Everyone who knew Nikki knew her as a person who lived this life of grace as she loved God and loved others sincerely and deeply from the heart. Peter wrote, you have tasted that the Lord is good. Nikki wrote, even in the most difficult times, God is good. She had tasted the goodness of God through his word and through the love of her friends and family and shared that with the world. The word good here is Christos. It's the same word used in Matthew where Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are carrying heavy burdens and are weary. You're tired. Maybe that's you today. Maybe even carrying heavy burden, you are tired. Jesus says, for my yoke is easy. My yoke is Christos. My yoke is good. My yoke is kindness. And my burden is light. Jesus helps us carry those things that are weighing us down today. Those places where we're not sure if we have tasted the goodness of God in our lives lately. His grace covers our sin and mistakes that are heavy burdens that weigh us down. And he says to us, it's not an I do it, it's a we do it. You don't have to do this out of your own strength. He says, read, read his word, clean house, crave his word, be holy as I am holy, taste and see for yourself, and you will find the hope of not having to carry the burden by yourself. You can live in the freedom of grace. Will you pray with me?
Father God, we come to you today and we bring you all of our doubts and all of our fears and all of those sins and those heavy burdens that we are carrying. And we come to you knowing that you are Christos, you are good. And we pray that we would keep things in the right order, that we would trust in who you say we are first as we lean into your grace. And then we would begin to clean house, begin to remove those things that are damaging our relationship with you and others so that we can be holy as you are holy. God, we pray for your strength to do that because we can't do it on our own. We ask all of this in your name. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at theychurch.org.